I wrote 16 letters to the session members uh, that contained a theory of disciple making in postmodern America, and that's become this book. So that's that book. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who some of you know, plays a role in the book because the last chapter and the third chapter are devoted to his thinking. Uh, and so you learn a little bit more about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I also want to say for those of you who are, um, the last chapter I think tells you where I think we're headed in the church. And I say this, I believe that without small groups, uh, churches have a very dim future in America. I think we have a very, very dim future for those churches that don't embrace this. Because I do believe we're going to see restrictions on what we can do uh, in many public areas. And so we're going to have to be more like churches in countries that rely maybe entirely on small groups. So it's my theory that this is something we all need to be concerned about because the day has arrived when we must change the way we do church. Um, just a little fact, I, I tell people, if Billy Graham were to come to San Antonio this week, if we were to hire the auditorium, bring Billy Graham back, uh, no one would come. O only people that already, it would be full because people already going to church would come, but non-Christians wouldn't come because the generation now alive has no Christian memory. Uh, whereas in my father's generation, if Billy Graham uh, hired Madison Square Garden and you were a businessman, weren't a Christian, but you were a businessman, you grew up in a small town somewhere in Missouri, uh, you had a Christian background, you would go to that crusade and you might come to Christ. So the process of making disciples t in our world is just different and it will not go back in my lifetime, maybe someday, to the way it was in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and even into the 70s. So that's what this little book is about. Um, there's also a connection between this book and the book we're studying, and it happens to be the last chapter. Um, we're not covering the last chapter of the book uh, in this class. But I want to tell you, for those of you who bought Path of Life, the last chapter of the book is, in my opinion, important because that's me saying, given this situation that we're in in terms of wisdom, what do we do about it? And interestingly enough, the conclusions I reached there aren't very much different than the last chapter of uh, Crisis of Discipleship. So I just encourage you, if you've got the book, you haven't read all of it, read the last chapter, because I think it also gives you an idea of how Christians can productively speak wisdom into a culture that's filled foolishness. So uh, that's, that's that. So where did anyone this week see Christ at work? Does anybody have a God story to share this week? Yes. This is such a good story. I'm going to have you come up and. Oh, can't you hear me? No. Because <laughs> I can barely hear you. Hello. Okay. <laughs> so the story is um, my cousin is actually famous. He invented tamoxifen. He's the father of tamoxifen, which has healed many women. And he also was a member of the SAS, which is the Secret Service of Britain. So he's a man in his late 70s with many accolades and honors and everything, and he's always just been real impressed with himself, but he should be. <laughs> and um, so anyway, I, he moved back to Texas in maybe 2019 or 20, no, probably 2017 or no, 
2015. Yeah, he moved back to Texas in 2015. And um, anyway, so I've had more contact with him and I've been praying for him. And there's also a, a young doctor who he's been mentoring. He's currently head of oncology at MD Anderson. So he, he and Balkis is from Jordan and she actually was the one who discovered about four years ago that he has cancer and he's been under treatment. So this has been making him feel a little more vulnerable and everything. And so um, in our conversations, we've been, he's, he's shared with me how he has become a person of prayer, as were our grandmothers, and our grandmothers were, were sisters. So anyway, I felt, and I asked the, fri the Friday night Bible study friends, I said, I'm, I have an appointment to go to see my cousin, and I want to pray with him when I go. And so what happened was I walked in, and on the table was the book, A Diary of Private pa Prayer by John Bale, which I said, oh my goodness, my mother had that book. And so he starts telling me, he said, well, several years ago I was at a conference and a doctor came up to me who, and he said to me, God has a purpose for every person's life. And it was Jesus' plan all along that you would invent tamoxifen. And he said, this has changed my entire outlook on my life, that it was God who had me invent tamoxifen. And he said, and then another thing happened, a crazy thing, but one time I had a cleaning lady in the house, and she asked me if she could pray for me. And that is when I saw Jesus. And I said, well, I want to pray too. And so we finished our conversation, and then it turns out he, he's, he went, he's there in Chicago this week, to have a chair named after him at Northwestern University. And then his daughters, he's been divorced a long time, but he, his daughters are in their late 40s. <clears throat> they are coming to visit him, and they're going to come visit us. And so he and his daughters and Balkis, the, the doctor from, the, from Jordan, are coming for lunch next Saturday. So anyway, we had this prayer. And it was just, and my Friday night friends had been praying for me that this would, God would be with me. What was so great is when I told them about it, I said, well, God was already working. I showed up, and God already had this book, and God already had had all these other people share with Craig and everything. So anyway, then I just did the prayer, and the prayer was a very joyous of thanksgiving that uh, God was taking care of him and that are letting our family draw near to one another. And Balkis had shared, she has started a company and it has to do with uh, pharmaceutical and cancer research. They've been trying to develop, if you can imagine, something that will prevent a number of cancers, ovarian cancer, breast cancer prostate cancer, all these things that they think that they can actually create something that's a preventive. Anyway, but she was having difficulty with somebody. So, it, so the prayer went on, and there was a little thing about um, thank you that Helen and Alexandra, the daughters, are coming. Thank you, and please give Balkis wisdom dealing with this person. It was just, I'm kind of a tangential person, and it was just a prayer to cover everything, you know? And when it was over, Balkis goes, gratitude! <laughs> so anyway, it was such a great little visit, and definitely the Lord was in charge, and it was a, just a delight to kind of walk, walk in the steps that God had 
put there, so. Thank you. By the way, Malkiz is uh, Muslim, and so this is a big, big thing. Um, so, uh, anybody else have something to share? Yes. Yesterday morning, we were with our grandchildren, <clears throat> and um, Joe commented that Kenzie, he could hear her little voice, and he said, I love to hear her little voice. And it just, the thought came to me, I know it was the Lord, that God goes, I love to hear your voice. So I said to Kenzie, I said, you know, that's how God feels about us as his children, and that's why it's so important to pray and read his word and sing to him and talk, because he loves to hear our voice, just like, and so it was just a neat, oh, I felt like. Thank you, that's neat. You know, keep your eyes open for what God is doing. I'll give you just one little word of encouragement. I might have told this story, but um, I've already told you we went to Houston last weekend to be at this reunion. In 1977, really just about now, April of 1977, I was a young lost lawyer, the secretarial coordinator at Bracewell and Patterson where I worked, was leaving to go to Florida to marry her high school sweetheart, college sweetheart who, it's a long story, but it's a miracle too, they ever got back together. So Cynthia invited me to the Friday night Bible study and I went. And I've told people, so I want you to think about that, Cynthia invited one lonely young lawyer without much prospects of being a Christian leader to a Bible study. Um, I have given my testimony in Russia, in Africa, in the Philippines. I have preached now for 27 years. I, we were part of a ministry that you all call a mass walk here. We called it the Great Banquet, where I've been a spiritual director 35 times and every time had to give my testimony. So I've given my testimony to thousands of people, thousands of people. But that one person, that one person, Cynthia Hesterly, is responsible for it all. So it's always to be remembered that something you say to a child or a grandchild, something you say to a, a relative or a person, who knows what the consequences of that will be? Because the Lord can do a whole lot with just a very, very little. Uh, and so I think that's my God moment for uh, the day. So with that, if you turn uh, to page 119. Somebody read to us Daniel 12, 3 and 4. week we're talking about what is called eschatology uh, in, the, in, the, in the Bible. We're talking about those revelations that God has given to the prophets and ultimately to John about the end times. Uh, and so I want to talk to you about a little bit about why is it in a book about wisdom. At the very beginning I think I mentioned to you that the book of Daniel is in the prophets in the Christian Bible but it is not in the prophets in the Jewish Bible. It's among the writings. It sits with Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the wisdom literature that is contained in the Jewish Bible. 
when the Protestants, when the Catholic Church and the Protestants put together the Christian Bible, we moved it from its location in the Hebrew Bible to a new location, which I think has sort of distorted the meaning of the book as people have read it as a prophetic book more than they've read it as a wisdom book. So I don't want uh, to say that I disagree with the, the decision to put it in the prophets. That's not what I'm trying to say. But what I am trying to say is today we're going to look at it as a wisdom book. And by the way, I think you can look at Revelation in exactly the same way for those who are interested. And not as a prophecy of the end times. But what is it that these books tell us today as we try to live our lives today in the situations we find ourselves today? Okay, that's, that's what, what we're trying to do here. And to do that, I really want to give you a philosophical uh, kind of a introduction to this uh, because I really think everybody can grasp this, I think. Uh, but first of all, what do we know about the future? What do we know about the future? What? He is, Jesus is coming back. God's in control. Uh, Jesus says, no man knoweth the day nor the hour, not even the Son of God. Which is another way of saying about the details of the future, we know nothing. <laughs> we know nothing. And if we did know something, we wouldn't have to live by faith, and God wants us to live by faith. So the fact is, God doesn't want us to know the future, okay? We just have to live day by day today. So why put books like Daniel and Revelation and some of these eschatological books in the Bible in the first place? That's the question, and I, I, I would do it by question and answer, but we could never get there. Here is what I think we need to remember when we read all these books, and it will help us not make mistakes as we read them. At the future, human reason reaches its limit, okay? In other words, we cannot see the future, but are we interested in it? Yes. You know, one of my jokes is, I'm planning for retirement, uh, and what's the one day you don't know that you desperately need to know to plan for retirement? When are you gonna die? You can't know the answer to that question, you know? <laughs> so that we all have to plan for the future, but we don't know really the most important fact we could possibly know. Or as I like to tell Kathy, if uh, I'm gonna die at 75, we need to eat, drink, and be merry because we're fine. Uh, <laughs> but if I live to 101, we might wanna have oatmeal more often. <laughs> so uh, we have to live without knowing the future. But we are, as human beings, desperately interested in the future, aren't we? Every day, most of us think about the future. So that as we think about the future, reason begins to deconstruct. That's the word. Our, our human ability to think logically begins to deconstruct. And all we can do is see visions and images of what the future will be like. Okay, so it should not surprise us that in Revelation and Daniel, we get these visions uh, that uh, are of a future that is not quite known, but which the prophets are interested in seeing. Okay, and those visions themselves, if we think about them carefully and put them to work in our lives, I might add, perhaps more importantly, 
uh, are able to give us a kind of wisdom about the future. So going back to today for just a minute, what is the fundamental uh, wisdom that we get about the future from reading Daniel? And with that, let's begin with uh, Daniel 1.8. Uh, somebody read Daniel 1.8, which is found on page 120. So most of you probably know the story. I'll just give you for anyone who can't remember it. But Daniel is probably a member of the royal family of Israel. Uh, when King Nebuchadnezzar came and destroyed the temple in Jerusalem somewhere around 587 or 605, whatever it was, B.C., he took captives with him, a lot of captives with him, back to Babylon. And then he chooses a few young people that are going to be made into his advisors. Because obviously now he's got all these Jews in Babylon, he's got to know how to deal with them, right? He needs some help. He needs good advice. So he chooses these young men, and he's going to train them to be Babylonians. He even gives them Babylonian names. So he wants to take these young men, and he wants to transfer them from being Jews to being Babylonians, but Babylonians who are also Jewish who can give him the advice he needs to have in order to rule what might have been 50,000 people or so that he had now in, in, in Babylon. So that's the story. And of course, uh, I haven't been invited to the White House much to my disagreement. But what happens when you are around kings? What happens when you're around kings? Big meals. Big meals, right? Diplomatic dinners at the White House. We're going to have courses and courses. And what kind of meals are they? They're fabulous meals, aren't they? I mean, all the best gravies, all the best things. And a lot of this food for a Jew would have been what? A lot of it would have been unclean, okay? A lot of it would have been unclean. And so Daniel, right at the beginning, is faced with the fact that he is a son of Israel, okay? He is a Jew, but he's no longer in Israel, and he's being asked to conform to pagan customs. Okay? So we'll stop with the first point there. So in what ways are we like Daniel? Yes, we're just like Daniel. Uh, we're Christians, but we're in a country that is not necessarily Christian. We all work in businesses that are not necessarily Christian. We have bosses that are not necessarily Christian. We have neighbors that are not necessarily Christian. Uh, we have, and so we have to learn to live. For those of you who remember uh, Heinlein's book, Strangers in a Strange Land, I got the title from that. Uh, we have to live as strangers in a strange land. And that requires that we do the same things Daniel did. What does Daniel do in response to the temptation to fit in? He says no. He says no, in a nice way. He says, won't you please let me 
go ahead and abide by the dietary customs of my people. Let me live as a Jew. And, I, and, and just, just do an experiment. If, if it doesn't work out and I'm not healthy when it's all over with, well, we'll, we won't do it. But it turns out, of course, that he is healthy. So I just wrote three things, but I want you to think of some things that we have to do. I think we have to be simple in a world of complexity. The world is complex. Our society is complex. And in that, it's hard to be simple. It's hard to concentrate on what really matters. In a, I mean, I'm, a, I'm almost a religious looker of news on iPhones. It's a very bad habit, which I hope all of you don't have. Uh, and just learning to not allow yourself to be dominated by the complexity of the media and the fact that we can now know. I can know what's happening in Bangladesh right now, if I want to bad enough, uh, on the internet. So I said temperance in a world of greed. Temperance in a world of greed. Uh, you know, for well over a, 200 years now, uh, Western society has been dominated by competition, right? We've been dominated by, and what is the fundamental underlying principle of the free enterprise system? Well, I'd go with, <laughs> I'm not going to say greed because I don't profit. Profit. It's, yeah, it's a, take resources, mix them in a way that you, what yeah. you get is more than what you gave out. That's what I Yeah, that's what, you, that's what you use. So, but I will say that I think, I'm writing a little blog this week on this. The fact is that from Adam Smith forward, our society believes if everybody seeks their own self-interest, the self-interest of all will be, will be improved. And I think we're right at the point in our culture where we can see there's a limit to that. <laughs> that that's not necessarily going to work as a fundamental principle. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a utilitarian principle, but it's not a fundamental principle. So we need to learn to be temperance in a world of greed. I can afford a whole lot more than I need to have, right? I mean, I can, I really can. I can eat more than I want to eat. I can own more than I need to own. I've, I, ha I have all these capacities, and probably most of us do the same. And we need to be, learn to be selfless in a world of selfishness. And that was no different than the world that Jesus entered into. This morning I was reading in my quiet time this. What, what, right before the crucifixion, what are the apostles arguing about? Who's going to be the greatest? Jesus is about to give up his life for the world. The disciples are sitting around saying, gosh, when he finally defeats the Romans and we've got all these robes and palaces, which one of us is going to be the greatest of the great? Now, that's what their concern is. So we really learn, need to learn that being selfless is what Jesus wants us to be. Being selfless is at the center of what the Christian life is all about. It's seeking the good of others as well as our own good. So uh, with that, what are some of the small compromises that we make uh, that may weaken our attention on God? What are some of the very small compromises that we can make in our lives that weaken our attention on God? Yeah, just skipping our daily quiet time, daily prayers is one that, I don't know about all of you, but I find it very hard to, not to skip, maybe more often than I want to skip. What else? What else are some of the, well, you know, I put down in mind, it's easy for me to skip giving. You know, I'm now in my fourth week of owing First Presbyterian Church a little check, and uh, 
I keep forgetting to bring my checkbook to church with me uh, or make the transfer. I think it's easy to skip giving, isn't it? If you just take your attention off it for a matter. Um, you know, one of the things I think it's easy to do is how many of us think we might watch just a little too much TV? Yeah, I think I watch just a little too much TV. It crowds out more important things uh, because I maybe spend just a little bit too much time in front of the tube uh, or being entertained. Uh, what else? We have a Social media. Social media. I have this long prayer list that I keep, and in the mornings I go through the prayer list. And I cannot tell you how many times I get off the prayer list to check social media. I'm, I'm like, this is bad, uh, but I do it. Okay, well, I think asking ourselves the question, what are our little compromises that we all make, we all make them because we're human, that we might want to try to control. So the next one is uh, Daniel 2, 21. Um, to 22, who would like to read that for us? So who does know the future? Who does know the hidden things? God knows the hidden things. God and God alone knows the hidden things. Now this comes from, I think, one of the most fun stories. At least when I teach Daniel, I think it's one of the most fun stories. But in chapter 2, basically Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And he decides that he needs to give his advisors some incentives to have a good interpretation of the dream. And so he tells them that if they don't tell him the meaning of the dream, he's going to kill them. That, that's incentive, right? Uh, and so um, they're in a tizzy. Nobody knows what the dream means. And so they go to this young man, Daniel, and Daniel prays to God, and God gives Daniel an interpretation of the dream. Okay? And so when I thought about what we could get from that is... We need to remember that God is in control, and therefore, if we need answers to our questions, we need to live by faith, right? And that would imply that we need to read our Bibles. It would imply that we need to pray. pray. It would uh, imply that we need to seek the wisdom of God when we are faced with understanding a complicated future, okay? That maybe not even experts can understand, okay? So that this ability that Daniel has, that the writers are giving us an encouragement to, to, to embody, is the ability to, in difficult times, live by faith. I don't know what the sermon's about today because I haven't yet been to church, but we're in Hebrews, and we're going to get to Hebrews 11 sooner or later, uh, for faith is the assurance of things not seen. Uh, faith is our trust in God for things that we can't know. So, are there any eternal questions that you are asking right now? I think about um, Daniel's bravery in speaking through the power. Mm -hmm.
we've got to look for those platforms yes. um, that enable us to have Daniel's bravery. And our God gave him the answer to the dream, but surely he <coughs> thought Nebuchadnezzar would kill him on the spot for such an answer. Absolutely. And, and he spoke. And I think we have to, of course, be careful for the right time. But I think that's a real um, important thing for us to look for. Yeah, we'll just go out of order a little bit to, to okay, follow up right, on that. Because uh, let's, it's actually used the exact words. I mean, you did a great job, use the exact words. So there's another story. Who remembers the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Remember the story? Uh, so later on in the study, we're gonna read the, the quote from them, but basically Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thrown into the fiery furnace. And while they're there, they say, O king, uh, we may or may not be released from the fire, but we are still going to trust in the God of Israel, okay? And I use that for the principle is that there are times when we do have to speak truth to those in power. Uh, and I, I was, you know, I used to be a lawyer. Uh, I, I'm a pretty big coward. Uh, and uh, I don't really like to uh, be in situations where I think I might get stomped on. Uh, but learning how to speak the truth to power, but speaking the truth to power is really important. And I think we're facing a point, my quiet time this year is I've been reading through Jeremiah. I don't recommend that. It's very depressing. Uh, but I think we're at a point in our culture where we really do have to speak the truth to power a little bit. We just have to say, you know, is this really going to work? The system, the things we're doing in our country, is it really going to work? Are we really going to be better off when this is all over? or are we making some mistakes here? So learning how to do it is important, but we do have to be willing to speak up when we need to speak up. Although, uh, yeah. But Jesus does say, be wise as serpent and gentle as dove, something I try to remind myself of frequently. So any other eternal questions? What are people concerned about? There are many political questions people are asking and economic questions about our future. Uh, you know, I, I found this. Whenever, whenever there is a fall in the stock market, business people begin to ask eternal questions about the future. <laughs> That's sort of a, the bigger the fall, the more questions you ask. Uh, and uh, we're in a situation now where virtually everybody thinks we're moving to a recession so that people are concerned about what's, what's going to happen. Um, and radical proposals are, are being made in Congress by some people to tax the wealth of the wealthy, not, not their income, but their actual capital, uh, things that our country's never even considered before. Our faith in the future has a lot to do with what God has done in the past. Mm -hmm. That's a very good point. He said our faith in the future has a lot to do with what God has done in the past, and that's like remember that God was with you in your past problems. That would be my short form of that.
bad things, and bad things in our own lives that he's worked out. So we're, we're falling behind because we had a long beginning today. Let's look at, well, we've done it, but somebody read us this wonderful quote uh, from um, Daniel 3, 17 through 18. That's on page 124. If our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and out of your hand, O king, let him deliver us. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your God, and we will not worship the golden statue that you have set up. So this is the point that you're making, that sometimes we have to say that we just won't go the way the society is going. Um, and I, in this little devotional this week, I, I said this, you know, there are always going to be recessions. The stock market is always going to go up and down. Uh, there's always going to be disease and death, sickness and loss. Uh, we're going to all lose jobs, or our children or grandchildren are going to lose jobs. Uh, we're going to have misbehaving teenagers around us sometimes, because we've always had misbehaving teenagers, and uh, spouses that don't always do exactly what we want them to do. So we're all going to face... The, the challenges of life. And I think in, in challenges, um, we just need to remember that God is with us in those challenges and will be with us. I want to say a word about our culture because I'm a, you can tell I'm concerned, but I there's an advantage to being 71. I really think, for those of us who are of an age, that the situation we're in in America today just reminds me of the 1970s and late 60s and the Vietnam War era and all the revolutionary talk that was going on there. Uh, and I think we, yes, social media makes it worse and we all see it maybe more, but we might remember that we've been through periods like this before. Uh, and God somehow got us out of those periods. And uh, we, so we don't want to over-concern ourselves with where we are now because we, we have been through bad periods before. Okay, I, I, we, I don't really have time to do more than one more, so, I think I'm going to go uh, and ask you to read. Let's go to 128. This actually happens to be one of my favorite stories, and we're all, there's a lot of gray hair in this room. There's a little bit of non-gray hair. Uh, but, um, so here's the story. Daniel ends up um, in retirement. He's finished his public life. Uh, he's an old man. He's an old man. And when Cyrus of Persia conquers the Neo-Babylonian Empire, uh, he restores Daniel to a position of leadership. And, as was the case under the prior king, the, uh, the advisors of the king want to get rid of him and they conspire to make him uh, have to be faithful to God because they get this rule that you can't pray to anybody but Cyrus. And he continues to pray three times a day at his window where everybody can see him uh, uh, to the God of Israel. And so they throw him into the lion's den famous story, and uh, over that night he is not killed, 
And so he is released the next morning. And the story makes it very plain that Cyrus didn't like being forced to do this. He had made a, he'd made a law, so he had to obey his own law, but he didn't like, he didn't like the situation he was in. Um, that's a reminder to us of what? What's that a reminder to us of? What? Human fallibility. Human fallibility? And when we're in the lion's den, who, who can release us? God can release us. Uh, and I, I think if we go thinking back on our lives, how many of us have been in tight situations? In business? In, yeah. And are we here this morning? <laughs> and we're here this morning, right? <laughs> <laughs> so to remember that God has delivered us in the past from tight situations, he's delivered other people from tight situations, and in tight situations we can trust that God will relieve us. Now once again, I love this chapter from Hebrews, we probably are about to hear sooner or later this sermon series, but what does Daniel 11 tell us about deliverance? part nobody likes talking about is later on in chapter 11 of Hebrews where it says, but some were sawn in two. Some were ripped apart by lions. Yeah. God can, but he doesn't always. He doesn't always. Uh, or as I like to say, if all prayers were answered, then none of us would ever die. So uh, each of us is individually going to suffer at least one unanswered prayer during our lifetime. Uh, and so we need to remember that uh, not all prayers are answered. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm, Kathy's already gone, so I can say that. It might be a deliverance for Kathy, might be the end of me. Uh, um, so, I, just to go to this, though, I think it's a good question to ask ourselves, are there situations in our life today where we're being asked to violate our fundamental principles? And I want to say one of the things I notice about being retired is I don't end up with as many challenges of that sort as I used to before I was retired. Uh, but when you work in the world, you have to deal with people, right? And there's always challenges when you work with people. Uh, and so um, we all have to face the fact that people look the world differently. Well, I'm going to close this with really what's my favorite, favorite verse. Uh, it happens to come from the end of the Bible. Um, this is just a great story. It's the final vision. And John is now at the end of his visions, and he says this. And then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing through the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city. And on either side of the river is the tree of life. Remember, that's a constant symbol in Proverbs of wisdom. And with its 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit each month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. So I want to give you the vision. It occurs in more than one book, but this is the final time we're going to see it in the Bible. So coming out of the temple in Jerusalem, the New Jerusalem, there is now this river that is flowing, and on each side of the river there are the 12 trees, or when we say the 12 apostles, the 12 tribes of Israel, and there are leaves on the tree that are for the healing of the nations. Who are the leaves on the tree? You're the leaves. We're the leaves on the tree. 
we are the leaves on the trees and the humans are the nations. And so I, I'll move this to the last thing, is that what we need to learn to be, I think, uh, is just leaves on the tree of life for the healings of the nations. Um, I, I'm, I've worked on this little book, I'm working, on, I'm working on one last book on political philosophy, which is probably gonna disappoint some people, but basically, if we want to heal our culture, what do we need to be? Just leaves of the tree on the heat, sharing God's love with others in our day-to-day -day life in the simple ways God gives us to do it, okay? Uh, God gives uh, some people, like Joe Biden, a, a bigger way to do it. Chris Scruggs doesn't have that big way to do it. Uh, but all of us can share God's love in whatever way we're given to do that, right? And that's all we have to do. God does not, uh, God... Uh, fortunately, does not grade on a curve, and only that 1% that do great things get an A, okay? Uh, God instead just takes each one of us wherever we are in the life we have and expects us to do with it what we're capable of doing with it. Some are capable of great things, and some of us are not. Uh, but uh, all of us are capable of sharing God's love in some way, and that's the wise life. That's, we're going to sh shift from... God is wisdom to God is love, and that is the wise life. At the end of the Bible, we learn that the wise life is the life of love. Um, and so that's where it's in. It's been a pleasure teaching you all. I hope to come back sometime and teach again. I think we've heard we're going to have a, a series on the Apostles' Creed next. Is that right? After we come back in August. Oh, after, in August and before... And Paul's going to do the. I'm not sure what he's doing. On the five. Break for the summer, then in August, whatever date, I'm not sure. So we're going to break for the summer. Kathy and I will probably not be here at the very end of that because we go to Linwood, Ohio to be ministers up there for a few weeks. But um, we're going to be back in the fall. fall. So after Labor Day.